The China in Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Wits University in Johannesburg. The ACRP aims to improve the quality of reporting on Africa-China relations through reporting grants, workshops, and other opportunities for journalists. More information at africachinareporting.co.za and our dedicated training website at africachinatraining.com. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast, a proud member of the Seneca Network from SubChina. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by the China Africa Project's managing editor, Kobus van Staden from Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, it's been a very eventful week in China-South Africa relations. We've covered quite a few things in the newsletter. Let's bring everybody up to date. As of this recording right now, the port of Durban is technically open, but that's not the issue. The big issue right now is the railroads and the highways leading to the port of Durban coming from places like Zambia and the Democratic Republic of Congo, not to mention the vital supply chains coming out of the mines in South Africa itself that feed into the port of Durban and then make their way to places like China specifically. South Africa accounts for 20% of all China-Africa trade. So when the port of Durban is closed, it is huge. But that's not the only problem right now. The other big problem is that even if ships can get out of the port of Durban, which they may or may not be able to right now, they can't get into port in China because most of China's major ports are either backlogged quite a bit or downright closed because of the ongoing lockdowns that are in China right now. So there was a great statistic that we showcased earlier this week. 27.7% of all ships in the world today are stranded off the coast of China right now. So one of the world's most vital supply lines between southern Africa and China as of right now is either shut down or is constrained to the point of really dangerous proportions here. And I say dangerous only because these supply lines are the same ones that p- provide the manganese, the cobalt, the lithium, many of these vital ingredients that go into things like electric vehicles. So it's not going to be long then before manufacturers in Europe, South Korea, Japan, and the United States who build cars like the new F-150 Lightning from Ford, which is an all-electric pickup truck, are going to start running out of some of those battery materials. So that is something to keep an eye on. Also this week, there was a job fair in South Africa organized by the Chinese business community, and they committed to hiring a 1,000 people. And by the looks of it, it was really a tremendous success. And I thought, Kobus, that was really just really smart public diplomacy on the part of the Chinese and the Chinese Business Association in South Africa to do that, given the fact that unemployment now in some sectors is as high as 35%. So anything that relates to jobs is going to be a big publicity win. Yes, because the unemployment rate is so high at the moment, and it's been that high for a long time, um, the actual unemployment rate is actually quite higher than that because, uh, because you know, there's different ways of counting unemployment. And when you add people who have stopped looking for jobs because they don't think they'll ever find one, that that rate actually goes even higher. So because of this, of this problem, there's been a lot of 
anti-foreigner activism in South Africa over the last while. And so I think this is kind of really a smart move from the local Chinese business community, you know, to, to connect the, 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 to connect employment and job creation with this kind of out, outward facing kind of friendship building initiative, you know, so it was an, an interesting kind of thing for them to do. So overall, the South African economy in the first quarter of this year performed a little bit better than expected. Analysts had been expecting 1.8% GDP growth, and Bloomberg is reporting that it may actually come in ahead of 2%, which in many ways is encouraging, but that is really taking into account the fact that all of that economic activity, or most of it happened before the war in Ukraine, before the big COVID shutdowns in China, and before the big storms in southern South Africa that brought trading at the port of Durban to a halt. So it looks like the second quarter is going to be a lot more difficult. And it really, this is compounding problems that not only South Africa, but a number of African countries were facing coming out of COVID-19. And again, I say coming out of it, we think we're out of it, kind of out of it, maybe, not sure. South Africa has not been as affected lately as you see what's going on in China and certainly here in Southeast Asia where Omicron is a big problem. So as we start to look towards the end of the year, it is going to be very, very difficult, and it's going to be the search now for areas where South Africa can leverage its strengths. One of the areas where South Africa is especially strong is in the tech sector, and we've seen a lot of growth and a lot of investment in the tech sector by the likes of Huawei, also by Microsoft and Amazon. There's new cloud centers that are coming, new development centers that are being built there as well. So a lot of innovations happening in the tech sector. And this is one of the areas where South Africa can leverage its very close relationship with China. As we've pointed out many, many times on this show, South Africa, bar none, is the most important country in Africa in the China-Africa economic relationship. It is the largest destination for investment. It's the largest trading country. The largest ethnic Chinese population is in South Africa. So as we look to areas of opportunity to grow that relationship, tech is going to to be one of them. And so that's really what caught our attention when we were looking at this story, seeing a lot of work that's being done at comparing Shenzhen in southern China, which as we've talked about many times also on the program, is the Silicon Valley, if you will, of China, and then tech hubs in places like Johannesburg and Cape Town. So there's a lot of research being done in this area, and one of the scholars who's looking into this is Grace Yuehan Wang, who is a grant holder of the South African National Research Foundation in the Department of Science and Innovation, and also a postdoctoral research fellow at Stellenbosch University. Grace, it is wonderful to have you on the on the show. A very good afternoon to you in Cape Town. Hi, Eric. It's really nice to be here. I've been a fan of the China Africa podcast and really admire you and Kobe's dedication to independent journalism. Well, thank you so much. We appreciate it. And we're very excited to have you on the program to talk about what are some of the lessons that you think can be applied from Shenzhen to places like South Africa, especially as we look at the economic rebound that policymakers in South Africa are presumably formulating right now. But again, a lot of times we've heard that China can be a model for Africa's development. You see the Chinese propaganda constantly saying this all the time. And a lot of times it just doesn't work simply because China's conditions and situations and historical background and culture are 
are just so different than what we see in places like South Africa. You've spent time, obviously, in places like Shenzhen. You obviously are now in South Africa. Why don't you make the case for what you see as the possibility for places like South Africa to learn from the example of what was set in Shenzhen and southern China? Uh, I think there are several lessons that South Africa could learn from Shenzhen, and I would now say that it could learn from China model because China is so big, right? Different provinces and different cities have different conditions. But in terms of the Shenzhen lesson, I do think the local government officials' initiative uh, could be uh, applied and learned by South African government officials. So Shenzhen started in the 1980s, and what what's frequently said about it, or the, the one thing that I think everyone knows about it, is that it used to be a, a fishing village, and now it's this mega city, you know, and the home of Huawei and Transien and and other other kind of tech giants in in China. What did it take for Shenzhen to get from the fishing village to the mega metropolis? Uh, yeah, I do agree with you that uh, conventional wisdom always thinks uh, Shenzhen was a fishing village, um, but through my uh, historical archive analysis, Shenzhen, there was some commercial activities in uh, Shenzhen and Hong Kong area back in the Qin Dynasty. So I think there were some regional commercial activities back then. So probably said a historical and cultural uh, contest for Shenzhen and Hong Kong that is thriving to a mega city region. Yeah, but I can tell you from my own personal experience, the first time I went to Shenzhen was in 1993. And there was nothing there. I mean, nothing was there. So I don't know if it was a fishing village, but it was just a small Chinese city that was nondescript and was, you would never, if you told me in 1993 that 20 years later, Shenzhen would be one of the tech cubs of the world and one of the tech capitals of the world, I would have laughed at you. Everybody would have laughed at you. Impossible to conceive in 1993. Then, that being said, if you told that about anything in China, that 20 years later it'd be what it is, people would have laughed at you and they said, no way, it's not possible. But Shenzhen is kind of China on steroids. But I want to push you a little bit more. What are some of the specifics that Kobus was asking about that of these lessons in Shenzhen that can be applied to South Africa? Because from uh, at surface level, it really doesn't feel like there's a lot there because the Shenzhen experience is so unique to that part of Asia and what's going on in South Africa is so unique to obviously to where it is. What are the lessons and try and be as specific as possible for us? Uh, I think, first of all, Shenzhen is a migrant city in China. So like you just said, when you went to Shenzhen in 1993, there was nothing, right? There were probably not so many people in Shenzhen as well. So a lot of the first immigrants, uh, which we call them migrants in China, uh, to Shenzhen, they are pioneers. Some of them are government officials, uh, become very prominent local government officials, and some of them become very prominent tech entrepreneurs and business people. So I think the key of the Shenzhen culture is the migrant, uh, the, omer, the, uh, the welcoming, the open-minded culture uh, is rooted in the city's DNA, uh, which is very similar to Silicon Valley. So I think for South Africa to develop its tech sector, uh, tech sector and its entrepreneurship, uh, this country, uh, for instance, Western Cape, needs to have this kind of open-minded and a welcoming culture. But let's just be very clear here. The migrants that you're talking about were domestic Chinese migrants, correct? Not migrants from other countries. 
Yes. That's a little bit of a different situation, though, than South Africa, simply because in South Africa, the migrants I presume you're talking about are migrants from other countries, right? Um, I think there are two kinds of migrants in South Africa right now. One is the domestic migrants. For instance, I, I'm in the Western Cape province, but there is a lot of migrants from Free State or Eastern Cape to Western Cape. Uh, probably Kobe is no more about it. And then another migrant is the immigrant from other countries, uh, from other countries in the African continent. But so that's the case where it doesn't, in Kobus, maybe you can jump in on this, where I don't know if it applies a lesson here simply because you have culture differences, language differences, educational differences that are significant. In Shenzhen's case, it, people had the same culture, same ethnicity, same background. So that, that transition and that acculturation was much easier than what you would see in South Africa, which is far more diverse. I think the emphasis of the migrant and the open and welcoming culture is to inspire people to fight for their dreams, right? So uh, I consider myself an immigrant uh, when I was in the United States, and now I'm a foreigner in South Africa. And you do not hold the dream that you you don't want to do anything if you are a migrant or immigrant in another city or in another country uh, because you do want to achieve your dream, right? So I think that is a very entrepreneurial spirit among migrants and immigrants. So I think that lesson actually does apply to uh, both the domestic migrants and the immigrants in South Africa. So in, in addition to the to the openness to migrants, um, what were some of the other some of the other factors that, that managed to to kick off this tech revolution in Shenzhen? Keeping in mind that many cities around the world you know say that they're going to be the next Silicon Valley but not many actually replicate the level of success that Shenzhen did. So, so you know, kind of what were some, what were some of these other elements that, that kind of that pulled them through to success? Now I will combine the, the role of the local government officials in Shenzhen and the uh, entrepreneurial migrant culture in Shenzhen. So a lot of the first, uh, the first uh, local government officials in Shenzhen, they are migrants. So some of them I interviewed with, they quit their jobs in other cities and provinces in China, and they moved to Shenzhen, and they started from scratch. Uh, so I think that uh, embodied their spirit to, I really want to advance this city. I really want to do something as a government official. So that is the first thing. And second is, I think the Shenzhen local government officials are very, very flexible. So in my work, I call them bureaucratic entrepreneurs. So they uh, really uh, reflect the spirit from the uh, Deng Xiaoping, from the central government, which is uh, cross the river while filling the uh, stone. For instance, um, there are several uh, key stages of Shenzhen's development. Uh, in the first stage of the development, uh, nobody knows the, the future of Shenzhen, which is in 1979 to 1992. So the, the goal of this city was mainly to work on the urban city infrastructure to lay a foundation for the city development in the future. And then, actually in 1980, the, the city mayor at that time, which is Chen Nansheng, um, he proposed to develop Shenzhen on the industrial uh, revolution perspective while uh, expanding the agriculture, tourism, and trade for that city. And in 1982, uh, in the new Shenzhen Social and Economic Development Planning Outline, the Shenzhen government proposed to the Guangdong province government that Shenzhen should develop an electronics-based and innovation-focused industry for that city. So I think the Shenzhen local government, you know, they seized the opportunities and they 
embody this kind of entrepreneurial spirit to uh, direct this city's development in a very, very um, strategic direction. And that is very inspiring. But again, I'm still struggling, and forgive me, I'm still struggling to see the parallels or what lessons you think that South Africa can apply from that, simply because what Shenzhen did was unique even by Chinese standards in many respects. But at the core of what Shenzhen focused on, as you talked about, education, infrastructure, and good governance. Those are three areas where South Africa has become increasingly weak over the past 25 years. Uh, education is is very difficult right now. This was the issue, Cobus, that we were talking about earlier with Huawei when they got into trouble for hiring foreigners. When the Labor Department did an inspection and they found that uh, large portions of Huawei South Africa's uh, company and, and staff were foreigners. We don't know where the foreigners came from, but in many ways you wrote about how this was a reflection of the fact that they probably couldn't hire locally because the skilled staff wasn't there. And then, obviously, when we talk about South Africa, we have to talk about ESCOM and the fact that ESCOM as the power company keeps, you know, messing up and brownouts and blackouts and rolling, what do you call it, load shedding is, is you know, a part of daily life there. So when we look at the parallels between the two, I'm just not seeing that. And that's not a disrespect to your research, but I'm just not seeing it. Are you saying there are parallels or there are lessons that that the ANC and the South Africans should draw and in the future create parallels? I think uh, there are some parallels. I think the weak governance and the inefficient bureaucracy of the local government officials in South Africa are the major developmental problems in this country right now, and not to mention the tech sector. I think pretty much Kobe's know more about it. Uh, I, I think in the South African uh, government structure, we have the national government, the provincial government, and the local government. The local government uh, is actually very weak in many cities and regions in South Africa. And the national government also wants to uh, seize the power from a provincial government, which makes it very hard for the provincial government in South Africa to develop its education, uh, its infrastructure. So the issue of, of education, I think, is, is a really key one. You know, as, as Eric said, that there's, South Africa has really struggled to, to get its, its education system up and running, despite the fact that it, um, that it throws a lot more money at it than many other countries. What kind of educational lessons do you think South Africa can take from China? More, maybe more specifically, from which kind of level of education did Shenzhen itself develop? Because we know that obviously China has very high levels of education now. Now, but in the late 70s, early 80s, when the Shenzhen experiment started, that wasn't necessarily the truth. L looking at the experience of Shenzhen and the experience of, of moving from a relatively low level of education to a, a very high level of education over the last three or four decades, um, what can South Africa learn from that trajectory? I think there are three levels of education in South Africa to learn. The first level is vocational education. So actually, Shenzhen is very strong in uh, tech vocational education. For instance, we know uh, there's a lot of manufacturing uh, factories in Shenzhen uh, back then. The Shenzhen is very famous for its so-called uh, copycat uh, electronic products in the past. So a lot of uh, the workers at those kind of electronic manufacturings, uh, they come from the vocational schools in Shenzhen. Uh, they do not aspire to become the tech entrepreneurs, uh, but they really want to work for uh, for the 
electronic factories. And through their working experience in the electronic factories, they learned a lot of things about uh, how these uh, products are assembled, uh, how they can combine uh, the, the work they learn from their vocational schools to the real products and the real manufacturing. So gradually, a lot of them actually made a lot of money through this kind of uh, experiences. And they established their own small businesses. I interviewed a lot of people who uh, established their own telecommunication uh, factories back in the uh, early 90s. So I think this is the first uh, key lesson you know, to uh, strengthen the vocational education. Because uh, manufacturing is a sector which could hire a lot of people. And if we do not train those people, which are called blue collars, in the vocational schools, um, we are not going to have this kind of blue-collar uh, skill labors. The second kind of education, I would say, is the uh, local government officials' uh, executive training. So I know uh, for sure, and through my interviews, uh, that a lot of Shenzhen local government officials went to the United States for executive trainings. Uh, and I was actually an in, uh, interpreter when I was doing my doctor studies uh, in one of the American universities to interpret for those kind of local government officials from Shenzhen. So they were very, very curious, and they really wanted to learn how America could maintain the uh, technology technological leadership around the world. So I think this constant training uh, for executive uh, and local government officials is very important. Then maybe you know South African government officials could uh, go for this kind of training in China or in America as well. And the third level of education, I would say, is um, to utilize the brain circulation. Uh, we know there are actually a lot of people, uh, not only in South Africa, but also in the African continent, who uh, pursue their studies in Europe and in America, and some of them are uh, studying in China. So whether you can attract those kinds of talents back to this country and to develop your tech sector, I think it is very important in terms of education. But that's been one of the big problems, Cobus, over the past few years is there's been a brain drain out of South Africa. There's also been a capital drain as well. A lot of money is leaving South Africa for other parts of the continent and other regions around the world. So attracting both the money and the people back is a big challenge, right, Cobus? Yeah, it's a big challenge. It's also um, made harder by the fact that South Africa, due to the popular pressures that we that we mentioned before, is getting increasingly tough about local employment. So it's it's getting almost impossible for many companies to employ foreigners, which you know, which which in the tech sector particularly puts a puts a big drag on development. You know, because as we know, for example, Silicon Valley is you know the the role of South Asians, for example, in in you know in in building innovation in Silicon Valley. Over over the last few years has been significant so you know so it is difficult for for south africa to attract international talent while at the same time they're also facing a lot of constraints in building local talent and bear in mind that's not just a south african phenomena out here in asia it's the same situation singapore has cracked down on work visas china itself it's it's very very difficult now for foreigners to get into china even beyond the covid restrictions when I was there up until 2019, the visas were getting so much more difficult to get. And of course, the United States, which has always been difficult and now even much more difficult. Grace, let's kind of kind of focus a little bit more on South Africa and looking at, you have these great ideas, you're putting them out there in papers, and you're kind of ringing the bells to say there's this 
Great model out there in the form of Shenzhen. You guys should look at it. What's been the reception from South African stakeholders, particularly if you've had the chance to speak to anybody in the ANC, as to whether or not they think any of your ideas are applicable to their country? I think the idea of attracting foreign investment uh, is particularly attracting to well, them. Everybody wants to attract foreign investment. <laughs> I mean, that's that's a, I mean that everybody wants that. That goes back to my argument that that is like whether the local government officials could take the initiative to attract foreign investment is really a key to not only development, but also the technological uh, entrepreneurship. What can South Africa learn from China's Silicon Valley and Shenzhen? That is the focus of the research that Grace Yehan Wang is doing with a grant from the South African National Research Foundation in the Department of Science and Innovation and also as a postdoctoral research fellow at Stellenbosch University. It's a fascinating topic for us to think about as South Africa attempts to pull itself out of the current economic downturn and to solve some of those employment issues and also to think about a governance model that serves the the people and, and, and takes advantage of the human resources that it has at, at its disposal. And South Africa is blessed in all of that. So, Grace, thank you so much for taking the time to share some of your insights on this and some of the work that you're doing. We'll put links to some of your papers in the show notes. And that way, if people want to read what you've been working on, they'll, they'll easily find them. So we want to thank you for your time today. Thank you for having me. Thank you. It's an absolutely fascinating topic, and there's been these discussions over the years about lessons that Africa and other regions in the the global south can take from China's economic development experience. I'm a little bit more skeptical, and I think you heard that in some of my questioning there, that China's lessons are applicable to other countries, in part because I think China's governing model is so distinct in the world. It is this authoritarian, very centralized, top-down system and that I don't know works in places like South Africa. But maybe you can help me better understand where where Grace and a lot of these other thinkers are coming from on this issue. Well, I think you know the way that they that they see it is is to a certain extent the way that 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 Chinese state stakeholders also see it when they deal with Africa, is that in a lot of ways Africa is is reminiscent of what China was like in the late 70s and early 80s. Um, so, I mean, at that stage, you know, now we, we, we're very used to thinking of China as being hyper-efficient, um, hyper-educated, um, you know, in a very high skills base. Um, but that wasn't really true in the, in the late 70s and early 80s. I, I recently read this very interesting um Dutch language um, account of traveling in in China in, in the mid eighties by the, the the journalist Adrian van Dis, and it's very interesting. Like he he keeps complaining at that stage about China is so is so slow, everything nothing works, like everything is so you know so kind of lackadaisical, no, like no one has any any drive, like no no businesses work because there's no entrepreneurial spirit. It's really interesting to read. This is very st- strong contrast to now. And you know, kind of, and what what I think a lot of these people say is that that China managed to pull themselves out of what was uh, a very sluggish kind of kind of communist economy into this hypercharged you know economy, and one of the ways that that they did it was through local government planning, um, and this this uh, kind of bureaucratic entrepreneurship that Grace was was outlining was key to that success. 
Um, you know, so so I think a lot of places when they talk about taking lessons, these are some of the lessons that they want to take. It's like what were some of these early early kind of adjustments that China did in in a moment when it didn't seem very promising as as a growth economy, into kicking you know switching on these switches to to flipping these switches to to start start off this development. I can tell you from my own personal experience as somebody who went to China for the first time in 1989 that the scholar that you were referencing, he was absolutely right. China was a mess back then. China was extraordinarily poor. And it's just kind of funny because every time we hear this issue of Chinese managers in Africa, or and not even just in Africa, by the way, in other parts of the world, here in Southeast Asia as well, constantly accuse their workers of being lazy and not working hard and you know not wanting to kind of put in the, the hours into the job. That's what Korean and Japanese and Taiwanese managers used to say about Chinese workers in the 80s. And also one very interesting point just to bring up when you said, and I know you didn't mean it this way, but I think it's just a point worth bringing up of the Chinese kind of bring, pulling themselves up to do that. Professors like Deborah Braudigam in her early research will point out that the Chinese received an enormous amount of help from Japan. Also, they didn't have major defense expenditures because the United States kept the Japanese and Koreans and others at bay. So there was an opportunity for them to grow, and they took a lot of World Bank assistance as well. So the Chinese did a lot on their own, but they by no means did it by themselves. And I think that's a very important point that often gets lost in some of the nationalist Chinese rhetoric that we hear today that is very much about, we did this on our own. And, you know, it's a little bit like that in the U.S. as well, you know, the makers versus the takers debate and this whole idea of we built this. Well, no, you kind of didn't. Uh, a lot of people helped to build America and a lot of people helped to create the environment for China to to take off and to do what it did. So just a little yeah. bit of a, some fine print there. I mean, it's, that's a really important point. And I think in, in, in relation to the, as you, that debate, as you see it in the US, is frequently obviously a, a kind of a libertarian slash neoliberal debate, you know, kind of where there is this fantasy that 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 simple, pure entrepreneurship is enough to to kick off development, which is, of course, a fantasy. Because if, the, if there is one thing that, that China shows, and that was actually recently also, also mentioned by Justin Ihu Lin in a, in a very interesting interview that we featured. Um, he's, a, he's a famous Chinese economist. Um, now at Peking University, formerly formerly at the World Bank, but what he was pointing out was that that government capacity is key to all of this. There's no there's no kind of moving forward in development without government capacity, and I think what this is one of the one of the big things that I think a, a country like South Africa wants to take from China is how did you manage how did you manage to build all of that local government and provincial government capacity in order to kickstart all of this development the big difference i think between south africa and china in this respect is that the the central government in china even no matter how reviled that central government is in western countries within china it it enjoys a lot of trust like a lot of very high levels of, of popular approval of, of the government in china which is the exact opposite in south africa like south africa i think one could now like literally talk of open hatred of the government from from South Africans. Like it was very interesting when the government now announced that the, the kind of assistance, like assistance budgets that was that was announced um, for for reconstruction in KwaZulu Natal province after the floods. The, there was this wave of just like 
open screaming at the government from 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 South Africans on Twitter, just saying like, "Yeah, you assholes, you're going to be stealing everything." Um, you know, so so I think I think it is almost impossible to have less trust in the government than you have in South Africa at the moment, and I think that is a real difference between China and South Africa. And that's not just unique to South Africa as well. You see similar sentiments in many other African countries as well, which is again a fundamental reason why. I'm not entirely persuaded that there are a lot of examples of how the Chinese governance model and the Chinese economic model can be ported over to a place like Africa. Certainly some aspects of it, but uh, bits and pieces of it, in my view. Let's now shift our focus away from China, South Africa, to look at what's happening in the Francophone world. We've just started our new weekly segment with our very own Jero Nima, who is the Francophone editor for the China Africa Project and host of the Afrique Sheen podcast. If you are a French speaker or you want to be a French speaker and you want to practice your French, this is a fantastic way to do it. We've received quite a few emails from people saying how happy they are that we're featuring a China Africa podcast in French because they can uh, practice French. So, Giraud, a very good afternoon to you. Thank you so much for joining us. We have a lot to talk about today. Uh, let's get started, okay? Yes, good afternoon, Eric. Okay, so the hot story this week that broke in Rwanda was a court there sentenced a Chinese gentleman, a mining boss, for 20 years in jail for just a brutal beating. Torture, they say. I mean, they torture, torture is the word that, I mean, and it was torture. He tied up these people, these, these, these young men to, they said it was a tree, but it was a big pole, and he just beat the crap out of them. And it was captured on video. He received a 20-year sentence. His Rwandan accomplice received a 12-year jail sentence. It sparked a huge outpouring on Twitter and social media of anger and satisfaction and rage and debate. You've been thinking about this all day. You've been following it all day. Let's get your take on this really unprecedented jail sentence for a Chinese national in Africa. Yeah, it's very unprecedented for a Chinese manager in mining sectors in Africa, even Chinese manager in Africa in general. We all know that most of the time when Chinese managers misbehave or they are at odds with the law, most of the time they are repatriated to their country, they're sent back to their country. They are not, if they're arrested, they're sent back. Most of African countries, they don't sentence them to jail. So this 20 years of jail was really, I think it was more shows of an example to, to to, to let people know, to, to let Chinese know, especially in Rwanda, that you know, they want to implement things differently. And of course, all throughout Africa, people have been talking about it to say, yeah, this is an example to follow because most of the time when there is a problem, Chinese are just you know, sent back to China, which is very completely different when an African misbehave in, in, in China. We all know how many, how long they take in jail. So yeah, it's really something that Africans have been following and been like applauding for most of for more for, for most of them. Gerard, we've seen um, similar videos of labor abuses coming out of the Democratic Republic of Congo last year. Um, do you think that this example from Rwanda is going to have any kind of resonance or impact in the DRC mining sector? 
Uh, it's difficult to say right now because the two countries have a different context. Um, Rwanda has much a, a certain, the, gov- the Rwanda government has more a certain way of showing itself to be pride, to be a nationalistic government. So they're kind of they're kind of strict when it comes to implement and to to implement laws to the very much rigorous. But the context in DRC is quite difficult. It's quite complex because the Chinese, the corruption in the, in the Congolese government in the public administration made the Chinese being able to maneuver in that in that environment. So when things like this happen, it's happened before, it will happen after that, you still have like someone who's willing, you know, to take a bribe and to let the Chinese go. And that's what one of the things I've been seeing a lot. So is that going to have an impact on the mining sector, the way people address, the way the justice address Chinese in DRC? I don't think so, unfortunately. Some of the comments were also critical of the court. And they were definitely a minority. And they said a 20-year sentence for this is far too long, and in part because these kinds of beatings are actually more common than many people think. And if and these people on Twitter said, if we sentenced everybody to these long jail terms, the streets would be empty. You had a perspective on that. Yes, of course. My perspective on that was Rwanda wanted to share an example. It was really wanted to send a message, a very strong message that, you know, Twitch to the Chinese that you do not have to behave as if you are in a conquered land here in Rwanda. We're going to do things differently here. I think that was the message they wanted to send, especially since it's the very first time that happened all throughout Africa. So, yeah, that was more of a message than anything else. So, the some people may argue it's very severe. I, I won't. I, I wouldn't bet on. I wouldn't try to to debate on that. But the court decided it was twenty years, twelve years to to the to their local accomplices. But for me, it was more of a message to all across Rwanda to make sure that every Chinese working in in that industry you you better behave. So yeah, it's more of a message than anything else. A couple of things just before we move on. Number one, the defendant has 30 days to appeal the sentence, so there is still a chance that it's either reduced or reversed on appeal. Unlikely, but that is the law as it is in Rwanda today. Also, the Chinese embassy came out with a very short statement that basically said, we support the the court's ruling and we ask our people to follow the laws of the land. And they did not come to the defense of, of this individual. There's no way they could. Interestingly enough, they were very quick to denounce this guy when the video went viral last year. They were really, uh, they were really quick to de- to denounce it because it was coming at a moment where there was this, you know, those video coming out of DRC, coming out of other countries in Africa, where we had many people showing showing Chinese abusing local workers. So, in that in in that moment, the subject was very very sensitive. So it was not really surprising for me the run that the government, the Chinese investing in Kigali reacted that fast at that time. Just one very important point that we should all take some context when looking at this issue. These videos are highly provocative. They're they're awful to watch. But the fact is, we don't actually know how representative they are of the situation. So there was a burst of these videos that came out last year from Sierra Leone, from the DRC, as Jiho said, and also this one in Rwanda. But to be truthful, we have not seen them in six or seven months, if not longer. So in many ways, I mean, I know a lot of people online 
were su suggesting that this is pervasive and this is what always happens. And again, that may be the case, but also these videos may be distorting the situation as well. So I think it's wise as you're looking at this situation to step back and to look at it a little bit more critically and to recognize the fact that this may not be the true reflection of the breadth of Chinese engagement in Africa when it comes to management practices. Again, uh, please do not misunderstand what I'm saying is apologizing or excusing or justifying in any way, just that social media has a way oftentimes of distorting a story. And these videos sometimes can be taken out of context. So just I want to put that footnote there. Let's move on from Rwanda. Tell the good people what are some of the other stories that you're working on for the website Projet Afrique Chine. So for this week, we had few few quite few quite interesting stories uh, in Nigeria and DRC. For different reasons, the Chinese ambassadors in those countries came out to to reiterate how China will remain neutral in those upcoming election. In Nigeria, it was because of a fake news that was spread on a local newspaper saying that China will support the transport ministry. And in DRC, it was coming out after the Chinese ambassador have been visiting a political leaders in Katanga in southeast of DRC. So the fact that he came out, those those two embassy came out this week was quite interesting to see. Uh, there's another story about Confucius Confucius uh, Institute in uh, in Africa. We saw them uh, working with uh, Sudanese army and DRC army. They're going to be teaching Chinese to those army when we know that uh, uh, Confucius Institute have been labeled as subserves sub, sub subversive in uh, in Europe and in the US the, the fact that they've been moving forward in African with, with African army it's quite interesting to see and just let everybody know that we are preparing our new French language newsletter and so Giro is going to be putting that together starting in a few weeks the website right now is open to everybody but in a couple of weeks the paywall will go up and there will be a paid newsletter which we hope that you will subscribe to and again we hope that you'll subscribe also to us on the English side as well. So you have your choice of French and English. And Nesrin Kamal, our Arabic editor, she is going to be joining us on the show after Ramadan is finished, and we'll be doing the same updates with her about what's going on in the China, North Africa, and China Arab community as well. So, Jero, thank you so much for all the great work that you've been doing this week. We really appreciate it. Looking forward to following you on Afrique Sheen. And for joining you and Cobus, by the way, every Thursday uh, for our live Twitter spaces as well. So that's something very interesting. We are playing around with the times, so make sure you come to the China Africa Project Twitter page just to make sure to confirm the time every Thursday evening South Africa time so you can confirm it. So we'll be doing those. And those are hosted by Giro and Cobus. Okay, Giro, thank you. Cobus, thank you both. We really appreciate it. Let's make sure we get on out of here. Cobus, just very quickly before we go, if you could just maybe give everybody an update on some of the stories you worked on uh, this week on the English side of what we were doing. This yeah, this week um, we've been we've had a lot of uh, a lot of kind of interesting discussions about debt issues, um, you know, and um, so so obviously we've been we've been chasing the debt story in in, in Africa and, and China's role in it for a long time, and it's very interesting to see that there is a lot of uh, kind of interesting discussions that 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 we've also covered on the newsletter in relation to new new kind of methods of dealing with the growing debt crisis around the world. So so that's something that we that we keep. 
a tab on um, and that we that we keep kind of interviewing um, experts on. Um, also, we you know kind of there, there was no way you know the, this this Rwanda story exploded all over the China Africa space. You know kind of so so that is another that's been another story that that we've been following a lot on the English side as well. Fantastic. So English, French, Arabic, it's all there. Just go to ChinaAfricaProject.com. And of course, you can sign up to receive our daily newsletter. And also, if you would like to support the show, but don't want to get the email and the newsletter, you can go to our Patreon page at Patreon.com slash ChinaAfricaProject. Jeho just did this cool introduction video to everybody. So everybody in our Patreon community, they get kind of the insights that in the secrets that nobody else gets. So that's just a perk of being a Patreon supporter. Let's leave it there. Cobus and I will be back again next week. We're back to two shows a week now. Lots of great topics for us to cover. So until next week, I'm Eric Olander for Cobus Fenstaden. Thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show. For more information about the China Africa Project, go to ChinaAfricaProject.com.